Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am the human form of the shruggy emoticon. I'm glad to be talking about movies with my friends. First up in controversies and controversies, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and hashtag stop the steal are all sadly very much in the news, but they have been in the under news for years now, circulating, picking up adherence on various social media platforms, bubbling to the surface only when something truly nuts happens, like a shooting at a pizza parlor in D.C. Uh, It's worth taking a moment to stop and think about where these ideas and activities come from, uh, and for the purposes of this show, thinking about how the culture has helped shaped and, and, and steered them. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where conspiratorial thinking is kind of the norm in movies and on TV, where there's there's always a secret hand pulling the strings. From Oliver Stone's JFK, suggesting the military-industrial complex had JFK killed, for trying to clamp down on the Cold War, to House of Cards, suggesting that a Clinton-like master pole is murdering people at Georgetown metro stops, uh, to the Manchurian Candidate and the Invasion of the Body Snatch, the parallax view they live we live in a media environment saturated with ultra competent hidden enemies destroying everything we've built and loved from within uh, QAnon melds the, that idea with a sort of alternate reality video game, as our own Alyssa Rosenberg pointed out way back in 2019. Uh, after an anonymous user on 4chan started posting riddles about the deep state and Donald Trump, uh, the theories spread to Reddit and then Facebook and then Twitter, gobbling up adherents who were convinced that... Hold on, let me check my notes here. Let's see. It's a globalist cabal of pedophiles uh, who were forcing officials to rape children to use as blackmail to ensure that they would do the cabal's bidding while also harvesting uh, adrena cream, that is fear juice, from the children to sate their ungodly desires. Trump, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, uh, according to the QAnon folks, was secretly battling this evil from within. Uh, And the effort to defeat him has to do with all of this. Jeffrey Epstein, who may or may not be dead, and JFK Jr., who definitely is not dead, according to these people, uh, are also prominently involved somehow. (sighs) Okay. Even as someone who spends a lot of time online, uh, and you could say I spend way too much time online, I have been shocked to watch this this theory spread and flourish and and to see sort of um, QAnon light uh, ideas spread on the on the internet spaces that we know and love. Uh, the combination of a culture soaked in these sorts of conspiratorial ravings, Facebook's algorithmic efforts to feed us this sort of stuff, and the increasingly partisan nature of politics uh, is an incredibly dangerous mix, one that exploded last week on Capitol Hill. Alyssa, I am at a loss here. I am at a total loss. I don't know what to make of any of this. How did it? How did? How did we get to this point? I mean, I think that. If you start um, talking about QAnon by looking at its content, of course you're going to end up completely baffled, right? I mean, this is the equivalent of like believing in lizard people. Um, it's impossible to start from the supposition, like, why would anyone believe this nonsense and reach an understanding of what happened with QAnon? I think the more the more useful thing to do is to look at the form of QAnon, which is essentially as an open-ended game. Um, And the gameplay is really simple, right? I mean, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have quick reflexes if you're playing a first-person shooter. You don't, you know, you don't have to be interested in building things like with Minecraft. Um, You just have to read these pronouncements from this, you know, supposed Q clearance patriot and do your own research. I'm saying that, you know, in monumental- Big air air quotes. quotes. Big air quotes. You can't, you Um, can't see them through your podcast app, but she was just doing like full hand air quotes. Um, And 
what that has meant to people is, you know, reading sort of circular stuff in these closed media environments. It's meant, you know, showing up places, um, you know, under the slogan sort of where we go one, we go all. Um, it's basically a way of playing a video game that extends into the real world. Um, and you have seen some sort of, you know, very extreme versions of this before. You know, you have people showing up at the Hoover Dam or, you know, um, and a mob boss got killed during, you know, what the perpetrator said was like a supposed citizen's arrest inspired by QAnon. So this has been bleeding out into the real world in violent ways for a while now. Um, and I think that, again, you know, the ultimate conclusion of this, it's really hard to understand how someone gets there. But if you are lonely, unhappy about the state of the world, um, you know, sort of convinced that things can't actually be as they seem, QAnon provides a way not just um, for you to have an alternate explanation of the world as the way it is, but it provides a sort of baked in community. And it specifically promises that there's going to be this cataclysmic event known as the storm when the world is sort of made anew. And what it promises is not just that, you know, the campaign against the satanic pedophiles will be you know, successful and Donald Trump and Robert Mueller, who's working with him in the conspiracy theory, will be revealed as the heroes they are, but that the adherents' lives will be sort of personally transformed, that they will be able to go back to the friends and family who have dismissed them as crazy and say, look, we were right. You know, we were involved in this world historical project all along. And I think the, you know, if you look at this as something that people have glommed onto as a cure for loneliness, for insignificance, for feeling powerless to change the world as it is, it makes a lot more sense that we've gotten here. And I think cults are always sort of like this, right? You take the first step and things get crazier and crazier and the demands for what you do to pledge your, you know, demonstrate your allegiance get nuttier and nuttier and more extreme and people fall off along the way. And what emerges is a core of people who are both very dedicated, but are also in a position where backing down involves being humiliated, involves losing a community that they've chosen. And so to me, QAnon has always seemed both tremendously dangerous and unbelievably sad. Um, you know, and I, I understand that it's hard for people to look at the mob overrunning the US Capitol and say this is really sad, but I think it is genuinely tragic in a lot of ways. The idea that this many Americans are enmeshed in a self-delusion. And to be clear, you know, the QAnon fandom is sort of a subset of the larger cult of Donald Trump, um, which exerts its own malign influence, makes its own similar promises, has its own similar non-falsifiability. Um, but it's just a genuinely tremendously sad thing that so many people have been caught up in this game that's really not a game. You know, one of the things that uh, always jumps out at me, Peter, is is the the wrapping up, especially of children, the threat to children, the harm harm to children uh, in this conspiracy theory. It's it's a it's a massive part of it throughout. And one thing I always think of when I see these stories uh, is some some work that your one of your colleagues, uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, has done about like kind of the the uh, scares that we have about child trafficking. Um, and and just kind of how how this all kind of f comes from the weird same ecosystem. Now, granted, this is a much more malignant form of it, um, but it it does it the, like fake news has a real cost. Yeah. So I mean, 
I will let Liz Nolan Brown speak for her own work. Um, it's excellent. I'm a, I'm proud to publish it. Uh, you know, she's written a lot about uh, the the ways in which people have used fears of child sex trafficking to basically go after consensual uh, adult prostitution, um, and that that's a very common feature of. Um, of American law enforcement these days, but uh, but I, I think this actually, you know, sort of you, the child fears that you bring up here are also related to stuff that was around when all of us were growing up, kind of in the background with the satanic panic stuff and the repressed memories of abuse, uh, many of which at least turned out to be basically fake that didn't happen. Um, right. And you can even relate it to, to stuff that is much less, um, I, I think, you know, uh, destructive, just like the, the kind of dumb, ever present fears that people are sticking razor blades in uh, Halloween candy, that there's essentially no evidence that this has ever happened, um, except possibly by people trying to prove that, in fact, that it is real. It's real. Right. Like basically ginning up a case in order to say it's, it's not fake. Um, and, you know, and yet these fears persist. And, and I, in some ways you get it. Children are vulnerable. Children are the people we want to protect. And they can be, you know, a, and so they end up being used as in, in some ways as, um, you know, uh, as almost as as kind of hostages. Right. Who uh, metaphorically speaking anyway, um, for these causes and for the insanity behind them, uh, because because the desire to protect children is 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 real and like and normal and very strong in in nearly everyone who you know isn't donald trump um and and that is and it's it's such a powerful desire that it gets gets and that it ends up getting used um in really bad ways sometimes and i think that we're seeing this here you know i i also just want to talk about the uh since this is a movies podcast <laughs> the the thing that Alyssa said about this being a kind of a a crazy choose your own adventure game and it really reminds me a huge amount. And we've talked about this offline somewhat, uh, just a huge amount of these online uh, games that were used to promote movies in the early aughts. And this was something that movie studios would just sort of quietly bury clues throughout the Internet. Right. And so sometimes it would be on a message board. Sometimes it would be a cryptic website that would unlock after somebody solved a puzzle or a date. And you had this going back to Steven Spielberg's AI. And then you know, it was, uh, I'm looking at an article from uh, uh, 2008 about how this was. I, I didn't even realize this happened, but The Dark Knight. There was a, mm -hmm. a big uh, yeah. like alternate reality game, and that's what they were called eventually. Like early on, they were just called internet games or something like that. But they eventually ended up being called alternate reality games, and that is what Q is in every way. It's not just an alternate reality game; it is an actual alternate reality that people have subscribed to, and that is causing them to do really crazy and dangerous and deranged things uh, not too far from where I live. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, like, it, it really, the game aspect of this cannot be undersold. The game aspect of this cannot be understated. This is this is the thing that drives the traffic on uh, on, on message boards and in, in on places like 4chan and 8chan and the rest, is that the idea that people are sitting there solving these things and, and kind of spinning their own their own uh, little, little, you know, realities in which they can, they can kind of influence the world. I mean, I'm, uh, I, 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 what does, what does this say about the, the kind of, 
I mean, I, I don't almost the meaning. Here's my big theory. Let me just this. My big theory is that this is a way for people to make their online lives, which are actually completely unimportant and and un, unattached to anything real, important. It's a way to say I am not wasting my life by hanging out on Reddit and 4chan. This is a thing that is good and important, and it has meaning in the world. Well, there's and also, I, there's also or, or an am I aspect wrong? of this. Am I wrong? Um, I, I, I want to hear what Alyssa has to say about this, but I just want to throw out this idea that there's also an aspect of this that is related to what you're saying, in which people are trying to give themselves meaning by doing this, but in which they are acting as bad fans, right? And we have seen bad fans uh, in the movie world for years, specifically surrounding kind of uh, genre films, you know, superhero films kind of tend to attract these people. Uh, and a thing that bad fans often try to do is they import, like they impart more meaning and sort of more moral value to, uh, say, a critic's judgment of a, of a movie than is like, then is justifiable at all, right? You're a terrible person if you dislike this movie. You're just morally abhorrent if you think The Dark Knight isn't the greatest. I like The Dark Knight, by the way. But if you think it's not the greatest film like ever made or something. But then also they do this other thing, which is that they are constantly trying to solve these movies, right? They're, they treat them as these like intricate little puzzle boxes that you can just figure out the definitive meaning of if you only look at this source material from Marv Gerfman's run and the 1981 Swamp Thing. I don't write like I can never remember the guy who wrote Swamp Thing before uh, before Gerfman. Alan before Alan Moore did. But like if you're like and they pull in all of this outside material and they turn it you know into their own like weird crazy puzzle and they they just want it they want to solve it and have it have a definitive clear meaning but also one that they only they understand and it's a really bad way of approaching pop culture it's also a really bad way of approaching the internet reality and politics and an even worse way of combining all of those things anyway, sorry <laughs> uh, Alyssa uh, the one thing I would push back on against that is that um, I think the artists who are sort of the subject of bad fan interpretations don't tend to really enjoy that. Whereas yeah, the, the person right. at the center of this particular fandom is super, super into it. Um, there's a book that I read a couple years ago that's had a big influence on me and, and on how I think about QAnon. It's called A Lot of People Are Saying, and it's by a couple of professors, and it argues for this shift in how conspiracy theories worked in American life. It used to be, they argue, that conspiracy theories arose to explain things that seemed inexplicable, right? I mean, you have conspiracy theories about the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. because it's hard to believe that it was pulled off the way that the official the assassination says. of john john f kennedy yes JFK so, jr uh yes john f kennedy yes. specifically john f kennedy uh, jr not assassinated just crashed his airplane just yes indeed. so all the QAnon people listening out there try to, you know. <laughs> yeah the, so the assassination of john f kennedy you know it, it is hard for people to comprehend that this sort of lone actor pulled this off and then that you know that lone actor was then himself assassinated by jack ruby and so you know conspiracy theories crop up to try and make sense of a world that seems nonsensical. And what the authors of a lot of people are saying argue is that conspiracy theory has shifted to rather than providing answers to starting to insert uncertainty and a sort of grand uncertainty into the public discourse. They call it sort of conspiracy without theory. Um, there's no, you know, like, there's no thing that's saying that, you know, a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. is like 
secretly a child sex dungeon, adrenochrome factory, whatever. There's nothing that that explains except people's um, but what it does do is it gives a kind of like grandeur and scale to people's hatred for Democrats, right? It inserts uncertainty and craziness into the system because it validates people's feelings to do so. Um, you know, the you know, the claim that Barack Obama is, you know, both Muslim and born in Kenya, I mean, that serves a concrete purpose in that it, you know, serves to delegitimize him politically and say he's not a legitimate president of the United States. But there's not some mystery about where Barack Obama was born. Like all of this is fairly transparent. It just inserts uncertainty into the system for someone else's ends and sort of personal gratification. Um, And I think that that fits pretty neatly with what we see with QAnon. You have people who are disaffected, who don't like the way the world feels to them, And so want there to be a grand feeling for why they don't feel good about the state of the world. And this totally insane thing is what they've latched onto. Um, And so just thinking about, you know, that idea of conspiracy without theory, I think is really helpful to understand what we're seeing here. Yeah. I mean, that that feels about right uh, to me. I I just I, I I spent a lot of time. Uh, studying and and reading about and going to 9/11 truth rallies back in the 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 mid aughts, just because I was working on a project about it, and it, it that at least there there was a certain amount of that that made sense to me in the in the con, in the traditional conspiratorial sense of how could this happen? How could how could this happen to us? And when I see QAnon, all I can think is you know. There is no reason for this. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it does not make sense to me. And it makes me, but it does, it does make me kind of sad. Um, anyway, uh, I, so exit question here. I, I I can't see any way that what has happened over the last week or so is non-traversial. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not going to sit here and uh, ask you to decide if QAnon is good or bad. Um, so let me close with a slightly different question. Uh, how, how can we best keep people from falling down these conspiratorial rabbit holes? What role do the te- big tech companies have to to play in saving us from ourselves? Um, or will any efforts to stymie this simply radicalize the conspiracy theorists further and push them further underground? Alyssa. <sighs> um, man, I mean, I think that's a really hard one. Um, I think obviously the sort of um, our algorithm-driven internet where you get fed the same kind of content that, you know you have expressed interest in and like more and more extreme versions of that um, has played some kind of role here. Um, Clearly the big tech companies should have acted sooner to demonetize Q-based content, et cetera. Um, But I think that the only answer is one that is going to prove really dissatisfying and frustrating to people. And that's because there has been a tendency on the left um, to just express like total exasperation with people who seem lost to crazy ideas, you know, is to say like, I'm done doing emotional labor. Like, I'm not going to Google it for you. You know, you can figure this out on your own. Um, but telling people clearly just people Google... cannot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you have, <sighs> I, I am sure that if you have someone who has fallen into QAnon in your life, that it is an unbelievably painful and infuriating experience but I think that people have to avoid estrangements and keep people who fall into this tethered to reality, even you know, even if you don't get them out immediately. 
you know, just standing there as human testament that there is something in the, you know, world above this subterranean fantasy that is worthwhile and loving and that will continue to, you know, argue gently, provide alternate facts and perspectives, you know, what we need is a mass cult reprogramming program and in the absence of like 10 million Rick Rosses that we can spend across, send across the country to do interventions with people, it's going to take concerted efforts by people's friends and families and communities. And that is going to be really hard and miserable. It is going to be involve, you know, people of good faith who tr- genuinely care about their friends and family being abused and treated badly and told crazy things. And it is the only solution I can think of that will possibly have an impact. Peter. Um, I don't think there's a great answer. I'm much less concerned about big tech, I think, maybe than uh, than you are, Sonny. I think instead I'm concerned about political leadership. And I think that the thing that, that all of us can do is we can tell people the truth and we can demand and expect that our political leaders tell people the truth and not to pander to people who are maniacs, to people who are, uh, in some cases, actually just really sad and desperate people. And we can expect our political leaders to do their jobs, to be adults, to be leaders and not followers, and not to lie to people. And Kevin McCarthy and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are either lying to people or giving people fuel to believe the lies that they already believe. And it's just, it's just appalling every single day. Um, but failing that, uh, I think we can reopen movie theaters. And I am being a little bit glib, maybe a lot glib, but not entirely. Uh, And to be clear, I don't in any way mean to underplay the health risks of COVID, which this month in particular uh, are worse than ever. It's killing thousands of people a day. It's spread most easily through unmasked extended indoor gatherings. I am well aware of this. Um, So I don't want to underplay that, but people are stuck inside. They're alone. They're restricted either explicitly or just in terms of expectations, in terms of what they are allowed to do, what they can do. Uh, social, Social feedback has just been radically reduced, as has just like basic stuff to do. And people need things to do and they need social feedback in their lives. And we have just dramatically reduced the amount of that over the past year. And I don't think that it is an accident that the fringes on both the right and the left have erupted uh, in different ways. And the right, I think, you know, in a way that is that is notably worse in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, when you when you combine all of that with people being fed lies, lies and lies and lies and lies by their political leaders, you end up with a bad situation. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a good solution here either. I am also in favor of opening up the movie theaters, uh, and, uh, I, I, you know, some, some sort of tamping down of the feedback loops on Facebook and YouTube, um, I think, I think would be helpful and good, but I, I think Alyssa's right. I mean, the only thing that's actually going to stop this is talking to people who you love and who you are tired of talking to about the adrena cream. Um, that it is that this is not real and and you know this is the there it's it is it is it is something to 
to be to be avoided. Stop going on the internet. Stop going on the internet is what it what it comes down to. That's my that's my big takeaway. Um, if you if you enjoy the show and and who doesn't, it's pretty great. Even though it is on the internet, uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus members only episode about Arnold Schwarzenegger's warning uh, about the dark path we might be heading down, as well as his plea to Americans to remember. What exactly is great about their country? Uh, he had a great video on YouTube this week, uh, this weekend, just kind of calling for, plea for peace of sorts. Um, and we're going to be talking about that. So pretty excited for that, uh, to, to tape that after this. And now on to the main event, Lovers Rock, an installment in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series for Amazon and BBC. Generating a great deal of buzz from critics groups and awards purveyors alike, Small Axe is undoubtedly uh, one of the best anthologies of stuff that we have seen in recent times. And Lovers Rock is perhaps the most applauded of those episodes. Um, I, I guess, anyway, I had a little bit of trouble penetrating uh, the patois of the people in this film, and and this is something we can come back to a little bit later in terms of sound and mix and all that, but uh, taking place in an English house party in the 1970s, Lover's Rock doesn't have much of a plot, really. It's it's mostly just focused on people grooving to the music. Uh, you got a couple of girls going to the jam and some dudes hanging out and skeeving on them, and there's some food being made and there's beers being sold. It's a party, man. It's literally just a movie about a party one night, which is fine, I guess. It's a mood. But there are no stakes here. There's no plot, really. It, it looks good and it sounds good and nothing much happens. Uh, the only moment approaching real tension uh, is when there's an attempted rape, kind of a kind of kind of mellowing everybody's harsh or I'm sorry, mellowing everybody's buzz, harshing, harshing everybody's mellow, whatever, whatever the phrase is. <laughs> I don't know what is. you do to marshmallows, Sonny. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, you, you could make movies about house parties. See, for example, the movie House Party. Uh, or Can't Hardly Wait, uh, and you can make movies that embody the vibe of their music. For example, Nick Cage's heavy metal action horror flick, Mandy. Um, but Lover's Rock doesn't really bother so much to tell a story. It's R&B Antonioni, uh, kind of. Peter, as a connoisseur of speaker porn, you must have been in love. What was I missing here uh, in Lover's Rock? Uh, I, I really did like this. Um, and yes, I mean, obviously the two moments, uh, that stuck out to me that are, that are the best are when they build the speakers, um, and right. And they just like the, the seventies British speaker hardware here that is on display is just incredible. And I just, I want to watch a movie that is nothing but this DJ going from room to room, setting up and tearing down speakers. And there can, there should be a great soundtrack too. Um, and the soundtrack on this was pretty great. Uh, and then the moment when it sort of all fades away as they all start singing together. And this is a movie, you're right, it's a little bit plotless, right? The plot, it's certainly not like a, a highly narratively complex uh, film in any ways, but this is a movie about how music moves people and about how it changes their world and their lives. And even one night of music, right, can can make a huge difference in who you are and sort of how your life turns out. And that's why it starts with music and with speakers, with a literal building of technology that is that gives people music and that sort of surrounds them in it, right? It's not just that they're, he's not just setting up little towers, or, you know, here, like these things are gigantic. They take over the room. It's because the music takes over that whole space and that whole story in their lives. And I actually think the most interesting thing to me about this, though, is not just that it's a great movie for speaker nerds. It is 
It is fascinating to me to watch this in the context of Steve McQueen's other work, because what is Steve McQueen's fascination more than anything else is bodies, just physic physicality of human beings, right? And the, and the the urges that we have, uh, the ways that our bodies can be can bring us pain, and the ways that other people's bodies can can inflict pain on other people, right? Like the the. Uh, two of his movies are Shame, which is a, a movie about pornography addiction, and then 12 Years a Slave. And I really think it's interesting to watch this movie in the context of those films, because the first one was about desperation. The second one was about suffering. But what is this one about? This one is about pleasure. Yes, there's also some suffering and some difficulty for sure, and I don't want to underweight that. But this movie, more than anything else, is about the ways that our bodies can bring us can bring us joy and and the ways we can just feel things. And the way we do that in this movie, the way people do that in this movie, is by coming together in a room full of music through speakers. That's why speakers are great. It's a movie about how speakers rule. Speakers bring, speakers bring the world together. Uh, Alyssa, uh, what did you think of Lover's Rock? I have to be honest, I want to come back and watch Lover's Rock not during a week when there was an assault on the U.S. Capitol because I was going back and forth between the movie and Twitter and just could not concentrate on it at all. And I admired and liked a lot of it, but it was also just ended up being for me this testament to how there's sort of a limit to escapist culture. And I think a lot of what... um, critics and fans have really liked about this is that it feels like sort of an oasis right it is this depiction of black joy at a moment when that it is a sentiment that feels really under threat to people in the united states um it's lovely it's effectively you know it's a romance movie it's about two people who meet at a party and you know aren't one of them is initially attracted to the other the other isn't so sure and about the events that not only you know show them that they're mutually attracted and interested in each other, but that there might be some real deeper communion there. Um, And, you know, I just, I really wanted to disappear into it. I wanted to love it. And I could not turn my brain off enough to kind of disappear into it the way that I wanted. Um, You know, and I like Steve McQueen's work a lot. It's worth noting that in addition, you know, in addition to the movies you mentioned, Peter, um, he made Hunger, which is about yeah. uh, hunger strikes during um, the during the Troubles in England. Um, and that is a movie about sort of bodily self, not just um, suffering or pleasure, but sort of self-abnegation, right? It's like, what do you do when you try to detach your mind from your body effectively? And, you know, there are a lot of things that I do think work about this. I mean, I think the actors who play Franklin and Martha are really charming. I think... The movie in its sort of shagginess, I think, is less plotless than both of you are saying, right? Because there well, there's actually, an arc, but it's yeah. not like this complex and intricate, you know, it's not a, a conspiracy thriller where you've got to constantly follow this development and that plot turn. And what it's it's just sort of proceeds along this like very kind of simple arc that is it's not plotless. It's not an arc. It's not an arc. Things just happen. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I think you, you know, it's sort of a coming together of these two people. Um, And like I said, it's, you know, it's partially about Martha seeing that Franklin is someone who might understand her on a really deep level. I mean, there are these sort of two important incidents. The first is that Martha's cousin barges into the party um, and he's clearly not okay. I mean, they are from you know, an extended family where there has been a lot of domestic violence. Um, She has managed to sort of shut that out and tamp that down. He has not. Um, 
And the way that, you know, Franklin kind of mediates the situation between Martha and her cousin and the bouncer um, sort of demonstrates him as this kind of steady understanding presence. And then there's the second incident where, you know, Martha um, catches this guy, Bammy, who was hitting on her earlier in the evening, attempting to assault another girl at the party. And that, you know, that sort of un- that unwillingness to see that her cousin is uh, called out kind of falls away, right? She intervenes, she, you know, she threatens, and I think actually cuts Bammy and gets him off this girl who, as we learn, is not just, you know, not interested in being raped, but is gay. Um, and is something, you know, that she has been sort of hiding that throughout the evening. Um, and, you know, Franklin is able to, again, like kind of hold space for her. And it's, you know, it is a movie about falling in love that is about sort of that moment of recognizing real communion in someone else. And you see that at the dance floor scene, which McQueen has set where the um, uh, the Janet Kay song that's been on um, on the turntable, the partygoers keep singing it for five minutes. And McQueen has actually said that that scene was improvised, uh, that it was like, that it was basically spontaneous. Um, and I don't know how much to trust that. It's like pretty, um, yeah, that it's a pretty amazing bit of improvisation to catch and hold on film. But that idea of sort of being in communion with someone else. And I wonder if, you know, the thing that I liked about the movie was also the thing that made it, it hard for me to disappear into it. Because the idea of, you know, for example, being in close quarters with that many other people I don't know and navigating that kind of emotional complexity was just, it was hard for me to shift gears from watching what happened at the Capitol to that. Um, And maybe I'll come back and watch this in six months, but, you know, sometimes there is a limit to how far film can take you away. See, I mean, I I get that, and I have, like, I think, you know, a lot of people these days, I have that weird reaction where I see uh, people doing things that you're not supposed to do now because of COVID, right? Gathering in indoors without masks and just and like hugging each other. And yet this movie actually just, and I think in part because of the historical setting, just brought me back and like made me desperate to go to a house party with a bunch of like single people in, you know, it like a weird neighborhood in Washington, D.C. and like, and just, and drink a little too much and, talk some shit and like get into something and like just come out feeling like happy because I was around other people who were who were great and like just packed into a room with them with music so loud that I could barely hear what anybody was saying drinking bad beer and like it just yeah, it was, was a great trip in that way and but, and it captured that so well I will say See, none that, of, none that's of the always house, been terrible none of the house parties we used to go to in DC had goat curry that looked that good I really want that is that for curry. sure uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I just, I can't, I can't empathize with that, uh, cause it, that is so foreign from my lived experience. Sorry. Uh, but I do, I, I mean, I, Alyssa raises an important point and I think it's something people should keep in mind whenever they're reading, uh, criticism is that critics, you know, are, are engaging in art and experiencing it in their, uh, in their, in their own way and in their own world. And, uh, whenever you hear somebody demand, for objectivity from critics, remember that uh, that's not a thing that exists. We're neutral we... nu- numerical score calculators, Sonny. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, right. So that's why I give this a, a it's a it's a one on plot, and like a f- <laughs> a seven on sound. Uh, no, I uh, this no, movie I mean, is like, objectively it's... an eight point six three. No, no, it's not. It's much worse than that. Uh, the the uh, the the look. It, 
again, the the what came to mind watching this was watching uh I don't know, uh La Ventura in in college, which was like not I by by no means the the movie I I dislike the most while watching uh stuff in, in college, but it was like similarly kind of meandering and and plotless, and luckily it's it's the length of a, an episode of television rather than two and a half hours. Um, the 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 one scene that I did quite like uh, the one the one sequence I did quite like was the one at the end with the the dudes on the dance floor with their angry music. And I was like, that I can actually, I can actually, uh, I can actually relate to that in a certain way, you know, more so than the the grinding scene. Gross. I really like that. That felt that, almost. I mean, the, the, that felt almost like voyeuristic. I did not care for that. That was too. It was too much. It was too much for you me. You bring this up, but, but angry dudes, angry you're dudes. You're kind of joking, but it's also that the I'm, music. Am I? I mean, no, I don't think you are. But uh, but the, the music told the story in a lot of ways. And you look and right, kung fu fighting is the act break. That's when things start to happen, and that's when you know you've actually gotten into the the movie right and there's and like the kind of the high point you know when everybody comes together is just that moment of everybody singing and it's and and the move this this movie is just such a product of the music itself and the ways that that music tells the story and becomes the plot even if the story itself is relatively simple this is uh the the other thing the other thing i playlist. would like to uh, the other thing I would like to say is you—you uh, you guys mentioned uh, uh, Twelve Years a Slave and Hunger and Shame, which are movies about uh, about bodies and kind of, uh, but not particularly complicated. My favorite uh, Steve McQueen movie might be Widows, yeah. which is actually very complicated. It's possibly overly complicated, um, mm-hmm. but it has that same kind of visual uh, kineticism when it, when it comes to bodies, there's that great shot in that movie. Uh, I, nobody saw it. So maybe, maybe nobody remembers, but there's, there's this great shot where the camera kind of spins around Daniel Kalua as he's, as he's like menacingly dancing around, uh, a guy he's about to kill. Um, and the, the camera kind of spins, uh, opposite of the way he's dancing. And it just, it's like, it's a fantastic little piece of motion and movement and, um, dance and music, frankly, uh, that was that that th- that you know thirty second sequence was better than the entirety of this. I thought because it served in in a function in the the film itself. I liked Widows uh, better than this, and people who haven't seen Widows should absolutely see it. It is great. It's a fantastic film that is criminally underseen, and I think not nearly celebrated enough by critics a couple years later. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, what do we think here? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Lovers Rock? Uh, watch Mangrove, one of the other small axe films. It's better. I give it a thumbs Peter. up. Um, but you know, hook it up, hook your TV up to your biggest speakers before you uh, before you watch this one. Uh, sadly, I have to give this a thumbs down. Did not work for me. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, please make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about the Governor at Bulwark Plus, uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, complain to me on Twitter, at Sonny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed again. See you guys next time.